from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster he'd threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you, that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered him. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off 
and then give me the gold. And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had led them, let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance in the, to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and neighbour and friend. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when, it comes, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with the plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, lead this place. You and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Pezzotites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. So far in this part of the story of the Israelites in the book of Exodus, the people had accepted God's covenant with them in a ritual. And in this agreement, uh, they would be God's people. God would be their God. In fact, they'd be special to God. They'd be, as I said a few weeks ago, the diamond on the ring. And at the end of this ritual, as explained in chapter 24, of Exodus, Moses went up the mountain and received the Ten Commandments from God, which were eventually etched into stone tablets. And he left his brother Aaron and his companion Hur behind, H-U-R, uh, to be in charge, uh, charge of the people camping down the mountain. And Aaron was boss, Hur was his assistant. And Moses was gone for a really, really long time. 
so long that the people started to notice that he'd been gone for ages, as it says in the first verse of our passage. Up until this point, Israel's contact with God had been through Moses as a kind of an intermediary. Moses is the one who had the intimacy with God. So Moses would come down the mountain and say, God has been saying this, and they'd listen, and then they'd say stuff back to Moses, and he'd bring it back up to God. So the people are completely dependent on him for their connection to God. And now he's been gone for ages, and so they're worried about this. And so they think to themselves, well, he's been gone for ages. We've got no more connection to God. Let's make a substitute for Moses. So the people go up to their substitute leader, Aaron, and say, let's make us gods who will go before us because we have no idea where Moses has gone. So we need a substitute. They, they can't follow Mo- Moses while he's away. They can't sort of listen, talk to him. They have no mobile phone connection up the mountain. So... They had to make a visual substitute for Moses. They were sort of making a substitute for Moses, and in a way they needed a substitute for God as well, but they're effectively replacing Moses. So now instead of it's Moses who brought us out of Egypt, now it's these are your gods that Aaron says, where he points to this idol as they make it, Israel who brought you out of Egypt. And in, in a sense, this, this golden calf that they eventually build is a kind of a, a physical image of God too. It's a kind of a substitute Ark of the Covenant. Because remember when um, the Ark of the Covenant was built? Remember from the, um, the week on Tabernacle last week, um, they brought their jewellery and their gold together and they fashioned together the things, including the, tabernacle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now they're repeating that over again, but this time building an idol. Both represented the presence of God. But one was under God's instruction, and now this one was under their own instruction, their own doing. In other words, all this is fairly twisted, what's going on in this passage. They stopped relating to Moses as their mediator, and they stopped worshipping God in the way he commanded them to. They, they, messed up, uh, God's represent- they missed God's representative, and therefore they messed up what God had taught them to do. In the words of Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 23, they suppressed the truth and then they did it by exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That's exactly what they did. If last week's passage on the building of the tabernacle paralleled God's creation of the universe in Genesis, this week's passage on the building of the idol parallels the fall of humanity in chapter 3 of Genesis. So how do you think God is going to respond to this building of an idol? We'll think back to Genesis chapter 3. What does he do? He gets pretty angry. It gives us a clue. Verse 7 tells us that God is angry to the point of distancing himself from the people. He told Moses to go down to your people. Notice he says your people rather than my people. They had broken the second commandment and therefore broken the special agreement between them and God. They had broken the covenant by building an idol. Later Moses would show 
how tragic and serious this broken covenant is by walking down with the tablets and smashing them on the ground. God saw them as a stiff-necked people, which was an expression that describes their inability to keep a promise. This inability to keep the covenant would go on to be a theme, actually, for the whole of the Old Testament. God, so God tells Moses he will destroy Israel, he'll destroy them altogether, and push on with the only faithful person, Moses himself. And in a sense, what God is wanting to do is to turn Moses into the new Abraham. Because, you know, Abraham was the first kind of Hebrew person, and from Hebrew, the descendants came. And so God was thinking, well, maybe I could just do a Noah, in, as in wipe everyone out, and then find a new Abraham, start a new generation or new people in, in Moses. These days... You might see people from other religions bowing down to idols, uh, to golden statues. I mean, the most obvious example is the Buddhist religion. So I've been in, um, in Thailand. There's a ginormous golden Buddha there lying on, lying on its side. You might have seen it yourself. And you see people kneeling down and, and bowing down to idols. Um, and there might be some other religions that in, use idols. But, uh, I think maybe Hinduism might. But um, it's less common to see a bunch of Christians creating for themselves statues to worship. Having said that, last year when I was in, um, uh, in Europe on the tour for the, looking at the Reformation history, we went to this um, monastery in Switzerland, a Catholic monastery in Switzerland, and we watched a whole um, afternoon um, service where... 25 monks sung for about 45 minutes and then paraded around the church and they stood in front of a black statue of Mary called the Black Madonna. There's three of them in Europe. And um, they basically prayed and worshipped to the Black Mary. And I was sitting there thinking, this looks like idol worship. And the thing is, if you pressed them, uh, they would say they're not worshipping the statue as such, but that the statue is functioning, functioning as a kind of a window to Mary and who's divine, in their, has a divine status in their understanding. Um, so they would say they're not actually worshipping the idol, but it's not that different to what the Israelites were doing, because the Israelites referred to the golden calf as the gods who brought us out of Egypt, they, were, they knew this was a visual representation of, of, of their God and, and kind of as Moses as well. So it's, idol worship is a bit, a bit sus. As soon as you see someone bowing down to a, an object, you've got to ask questions. Now, I don't expect many people in this room to be in danger of melting all our jewellery at the end of the service and creating some kind of cow. But this does not mean that we don't worship idols. On the contrary, we're always creating for ourselves things to worship other than God. As John Calvin famously said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, it doesn't matter how hard you try, it's like we're biologically wired up to create for ourselves, substitute gods, substitutes for God. And the question that's hard for us often to consider is how do you identify what those idols are? Because it's easy when it's a big golden cow, but it's not so easy when it's something more subtle. 
what you need to develop is a kind of a self-awareness. You know, sometimes we think when we're trying to think about our idols, we try and think about our sins that we commit. And we say to ourselves, oh, I have a problem with lying all the time. That's my sin. But to start to identify idols is to think about the question, why do you lie? What's behind that lie? Um, why? I, I'm so selfish. I sleep around all the time. I just can't stop myself. The question you want to ask is, what's behind that sin, the selfishness or the sleeping around? What's behind that? We need to go deeper. Um, the person, the, the contemporary pastor, preacher, teacher, theologian who's spent most of his ministry talking about idols is Tim Keller, who many of you might have read. And in his book, The Gospel in Life, he says, the real reason we sin is that there is something other than Jesus Christ that we feel we must have, have to be happy, something that is more important to our heart than God, something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change and even to self-understanding is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. We have to work out the idols of our heart if we're going to learn from the Israelites' mistake. And this is a one way you can do it. You can, you can start to identify your idol by asking yourself the question this for yourself. Life only has meaning if or or, 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 life only has meaning, or I only have worth if, here's some, here's some examples, I have power and influence over others. That's called power idolatry. It might be, I am loved and respected by a certain person or people. That's approval idolatry. Or I have to have this kind of pleasure experience or particular quality of life. That's comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning or you only have worth if you, have, you are able to get mastery in your life over a certain area. That's called control idolatry. You only have meaning if people are dependent on you and need you. That's helping idolatry. Uh, you only have meaning or you only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. That's dependence idolatry. Maybe I'm only worth something if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone else. It's independence idolatry. Maybe you're only worth something if you are highly produ productive and getting a lot done. That's a common one, isn't it? Work idolatry. Maybe it's that you're only worth something if you're, if you're being recognized for your accomplishment, accomplishments and you're excelling in your work. That would be achievement idolatry. Maybe you're only worth something if you have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom and possessions. Materialism idolatry. Maybe you're only worth something if you're keeping your religion's moral codes and accomplishing your religion's activities. This would be religion idolatry. Maybe you're only worth something of, or, or, 
or your life only has meaning, if there is this one person in your life who is happy to be with you and that you're happy to be with, this is a kind of an individual person idolatry. You're worshipping one other person. I know this sounds very sort of specific and niche, but you have to give lots of examples because there's so many idols and, you know, I might list 10 of them and then you might have the 11th. So I'll just keep listing some more. Maybe for, for me it's um, I feel I am totally independent of organised religion and, and, and you're, I'm living by a self-made morality. That could be a kind of a irreligion idolatry. Your identity is in not being in a religion. Anyway, maybe for some people, it might be that my race and my culture is ascendant and recognised as superior, as kind of racism, or racial idolatry, cultural idolatry. Maybe my life only has meaning, I only have worth, if a, if a particular social group or professional group lets me in, that would be what C.S. Lewis calls, calls the inner ring form of idolatry. You're, you're accepted into the group. Maybe your life only has meaning, you're, you only have a sense of worth because my children and my parents are happy with me. Family idolatry. Maybe it's Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Relationship idolatry. This one's a real one, but one you may not have thought thought of. I am hurting. I have a problem. And only then do I feel worthy of, of love or able to deal with my guilt. And that's called suffering idolatry. You idolize your own suffering. It might be, and I think this is a big one in the inner north, that my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence and power. This is what you would call ideology idolatry. Another big one for us is I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image idolatry. If we drill down into this a bit further, if your whole life is about seeking power, having success, winning influence, your greatest nightmare in life would be humiliation. And people around you are going to probably feel used and you're often going to be feeling angry all the time because you're trying to dominate people. If your idol is approval, that you want to be affirmed all the time and you need to be loved and you need to have relationships to have a sense of self-worth, your greatest nightmare is going to be rejection. People around you are going to feel smothered and you're probably going to be a coward at times. It's going to be an emotion that you're going to feel that I'm a coward. If, you, if your idol is comfort, that you just want to have a private life and you don't want to be stressed out ever or have total freedom, your greatest nightmare is stress and having demands on your life. And the people around you are going to feel neglected and your problem emotion probably will be boredom. Um, that'll creep in. If your idol is control, 
and self-discipline and certainty and having high standards is what you're on about. Your greatest nightmare is going to be uncertainty. What if something is taken out of my control? And people around you are going to feel condemned if they don't conform to your sense of control. And your problem emotion is going to be worry because you're out of control of something. You're going to worry about stuff all the time. I've given you lots of examples. And the, the first step of not being an idol worshipper is, yeah, pointing it out to yourself, finding it out, working it out. And it's hard because, you know, it requires in, incredible self-emotional um, intelligence and self-awareness and a willingness to face up to these things. What you can do also is you can pray and ask God to show you your idols. And I have idols, so I'm not saying, you know, some people have idols in their room and others don't. I have idols and I need to do this too. And so you could come over to prayer and ask, you say, God, please show me my idols. You could think about what you think about when you daydream, when you're lying around, you know, on the beach looking up to the sky with your hat over your, you know, just, just relaxing. What do you daydream about? Sometimes that it tells you what your idols are. What do you spend most of your money on? Look at your budget. What is it that if you were to lose it, you would also lose your identity? It's hard to answer that question, isn't it? You could look at your calendar. What do you spend most of your time doing, in your discretionary time especially? You could ask a close Christian friend to speak into your life. The discernment processes like this go on throughout whole life, and one idol will be dealt with and then another one will emerge. It's crucial that you expose your idols to yourself because God takes it very seriously. If we get back into the passage, think about what God thinks about Israel's idol. He's not even sure if Israel can remain his covenant people. Their open and blatant sin and inability to keep the covenant jeopardized the whole arrangement. And God saw no other option but to wipe them out, which seems severe, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. God says to Moses, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now Moses here sees a bit of an opportunity, a wedge, and he takes it. God says to Moses, leave me alone. What if Moses does not leave him alone? What if Moses is to then pester God and to talk to God on behalf of Israel? What if Moses were to ask God to hold his judgment back? God was suggesting to Moses that he could wipe everyone out and start again in Moses. Moses would become like a new Abraham kind of character. Moses did not want this. He didn't want God's offer of being the one through whom Israel would be created for a second time. And he wouldn't let God forget his own promise, the promise that he made with Israel that had actually got them to be uh, in the desert in the first place, free from Egypt. And also Moses didn't want God to develop a bad, bad reputation as a destroyer of his own people. All that had been done to rescue Israel from Egypt would be reversed. Moses appealed to God's love and grace and it worked. Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people, it says in verse 12. Moses reminded God of the promises he had made to the faithful Israel, and it worked. God had every right to punish Israel 
for her sin by walking away from the covenant, but instead he listened to Moses and acted in grace. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So we're not to see here God is having some kind of limited view. It's not like Moses is smarter or more gracious than God, and God is this angry father um, that just can't see clearly. It's, it's, it's not that Moses is smarter than God. It's actually just that Moses had this special relationship and intimacy with God. God had brought him into his presence in a way that nobody else in history had experienced, And Moses had seen God's true nature as loving, holy, mighty, powerful, gracious, and true to his promise. And Moses just appeals to that. And God responds. And Moses then deals with the idol itself. He goes down the mountain and he smashes it and grinds it to little pieces. And he basically shoves it in their face. He forces them to drink it. The golden calf that they once bowed down to and worshipped is now swallowed and turned into human excrement. It's literally pooed out. And this scene is full of poetry and, and wordless action. Moses just doesn't consult anyone. He just goes down and does it. And it would have been a full-on thing to witness. Moses' physical action of disintegrating the golden calf leaves no one in doubt about what Moses thinks. So as we think about our own idol worship, we have to work out a way of not only identifying it, but how do we smash it as well? How do you smash the idol of pride or of power or of approval? What you do is you confess that you have a problem to another Christian brother or sister. You say, this is my idol. I think this is my idol. I've been thinking about praying about it, talking to people, and I think I've worked out, here's my idol. I want to confess this to you. Because bringing it out of the darkness and saying sorry to God is the way of smashing the idol. And you might have to put in place some strategies to not let that idol back in your life. If your idol is independence, that you don't want to have to be accountable or dependent on anybody else, then you should face your idol, face your fears, and find someone who you can sacrifice your time and emotional energy for. Perhaps there's an older person in your neighborhood who needs some help. Perhaps you have a family member who you could give more time to. A person who worships at the idol of independence is truly smashing that idol by giving themselves their time to other people who are needy. My grandparents, who are aged 97 and 98, have been requiring more and more attention lately from the family. They still live in their own home. It's only just this year that the doctor said to my grandfather, you're not allowed to drive anymore. (laughs) And they're at a stage where um, their kids, my dad and his two sisters, are there pretty much every day. They have... um, help that comes in every day for half day each day and and, and this last week um the the my dad's generation were away so the grandkids had to step in so you know our family was there on monday and me and ezra went back on wednesday and you know it's it's not just visiting your grandparents at this stage you're really you're there making cups of tea cleaning up after them ringing up the doctor making appointments you know 
And it really, it's, it's, it's great to be able to do this for my grandparents, but also it's a burden. And I'm thinking on Monday, oh, it's, it's, it's a public holiday. My day off would be going out doing fun things. But it's good to see my grand. It's good to see my grandfather, you know. And um, I know that if... I don't think that I've got a... I worship the idol of independence, but I think if I did, I would really struggle with that. But, gee, that would be a great way to smash that idol, wouldn't it? A person with work idolatry should repent of their idolatry of work. Then they should start going on a long holiday, leave their phone behind, leave their laptop behind, don't take any work with them, take the full four weeks if you can do it. And if when they get back to work, if they slip into their changing habits of idolizing their work, then they could try working one less day a week or changing jobs that allows more room for rest It's not easy, is it? But you can do things. You have some power. If you have comfort idolatry, I think one of the biggest comfort idolatries, you know, for Australians is alcohol. So you you find that you just love rewarding yourself with a drink or two, you know, uh, and that turns into three or four. And then you lie to your doctor when the doctor says, how many drinks do you have per week? I I say, kind of, three or four per week. But actually it's about... 15 or 20. I read actually two articles this week in the newspaper, two different newspapers, that said that um, in Australian culture at the moment, there's a real normalisation going on amongst uh, mothers um, who, to, to promote kind of heavy drinking. It's kind of an expectation, almost like pressure amongst the community of mothers to drink heavily. Um, it's comfort idolatry because it's, it's, I've had a hard day, woo, 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 you know, and, and, and it's sort of funny, but then it's sort of not. So the way to smash this kind of idol is to confess your idol out loud and just to say, yeah, I think I drink too much, which is hard to say because you never thought you'd be the one to say that, and then to reduce your alcohol consumption. And you can find someone to keep accountable to See if you can reduce your drinking to one or two days per week out of seven. Maybe just on the weekend. Maybe, maybe just one night per week. It's not about rules. I'm not creating laws. It's different for each person. You might not have this idol. Others do. It's about lo- taking your idol worship as seriously as God takes it. He looks at your idol worship and his anger burns. We need to work out how to disintegrate our idols and drink it down and flush it off to Werribee. That's what we need to work out how to do. Moses steps up his resistance to the idol worship. After he smashes the idol, he carries out God's judgment on the people. And what he seems to be doing here, I think, is he's pointing forward. I mean, he's probably not aware of this, but he's pointing forward to Jesus, our judge. Jesus says that at the end of time, he will come to carry out his judgment on the world. He will sort out people like sheep and goats. Matthew 25 verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, this is is to the people on his left, the goats, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. You were worshipping at the idol of wealth and you wanted to keep all your money and time for yourself. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger and you did not invite me and you were also worshipping in the idol of status and you didn't even want to associate yourself with me or inconvenience yourself with me. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty as a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? We didn't even realize we were worshipping the idol of wealth and status. And he will try, tr- reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Pretty gruesome. Moses anticipates Jesus at this point. He too takes the Israelites through a process of dividing the sheep from the goats. In verse 27 of our passage, Moses stands at the entrance of the camp, commands those remaining people still committed to the Lord to come forward. And in this case, it was a Levite. He literally stands here and says, who is here anymore for the Lord? Anyone, please just stand up if you're still for the Lord to all of the Israelites. It's only the Levite to come forward. Then he instructs them to go into the camp and to kill their relatives and neighbours. He is both... Here Moses is both being, he's being the judge like Jesus. That's what he's being. Moses' angry response is also a reaction to the failure of his brother Aaron. The people are running wild and they would rather run as slave, wild as slaves to sin than be freeing God. And Aaron has totally let his brother Moses down. And the people have become a laughing stock to their enemies who were saying, look at the Israelites. They left Egypt so they could worship their own God. And now, look at God. Uh, Look at them. They're just worshipping an idol. They are a a complete failure. There's no coercion or threat to what Moses is saying. It's a free choice. Do you want to be with the Lord or not? And the slaughter that was about to happen could have been avoided if the Israelites had sided with God. This was actually less about whether they'd messed up and joined in with the idolatry. Rather, it was about whether they were willing to declare themselves as being with God. And the majority of people did not want to stand with God. And so their silence was pretty scary. It was pretty deafening. They actually had a second chance. And even still, they remained stubborn against the Lord. Their disloyalty and rebellion was intense. But the Levites chose to be loyal to God. And so Moses gave them this task. They became the agents of God's judgment on all those who responded negatively to Moses' call. And they killed about 3,000 people. Now, you might be thinking, this sounds terrible. What kind of God are we talking about here? But we have to try and grasp how serious this moment is in the history of the Israelites. Its entire future is at stake. God had just established them with a new covenant, given them the Ten Commandments, established the worship tent, the tabernacle, and now they're polluting the whole thing and trying to destroy the whole thing. It's almost over already within a few days. If the community is going to survive, some in the community would have to go. The relationship with God even takes priority over all relationships That's what God is wanting. 
Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus was using their hyperbole to say that he, he demands um, our first and highest love. And that's what Moses was saying here that God wanted. Now, there's no suggestion in the Bible that we're to do what Moses did, and if anyone in the community sins that we're to get out the sword, those were unique and critical times. But also, we're not just to see here God's judgment. There's hope in this passage. The gospel of God is right at the center of this passage. It's actually profoundly there. Moses, in fact, points to Jesus as the judge, but also as the saviour. Moses realises that what has taken place is really bad, and he decided, decides to offer himself to God as a substitute uh, atonement for their sin. He actually offers himself. He says, kill me, take me, don't take Israel. Verse 30, Moses says to the people, now I will go up, the, up, to, up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then verse 31, 32, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses somehow worked out that human sin could be atoned for by the death of another human being. But Moses can't atone for their sins this way because he's an imperfect sacrifice. It, it was great that he thought of it, but he couldn't do it. But he but he pointed forward to Jesus, didn't he? Because several thousand years later, Jesus, who was the truer and greater Moses, was able to offer himself as a, as a per, perfect sacrifice. Jesus was able to do what Moses could not do. Jesus was without sin, and he took the place of the sinful people of God so that those who believe in him could be forgiven and not have to face the punishment that they truly deserve. Moses ended up being a saviour figure who points forward in time to Jesus. So to finish, just think about how complex God's love is here. At the end of the chapter, we find out that God has shown grace to the Israelites, but he's still angry. There are still consequences. Look at verse 3 of chapter 33. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, God says, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments. They have to go on with God at a distance. His special presence has been removed from them, just like what happened in the Garden of Eden. They lose their intimacy with him. God is like a real parent here. There was a time when um, Leo and Ezra were in a particularly foul and obnoxious mood with me. They were egging each other on, and their target of mockery was me, they were chanting that they hated Daddy and Daddy should go in the bin. Daddy should go in the bin. Daddy should go in the bin. I'd been kicked, I won't say where, and I couldn't get them to eat their dinner. My anger burned. This is true. Only a few weeks or months ago. So I quietly 
shut the front door, and I walked out, and I sat in the park bench with the homeless people in front of Peter Monty's. And I sat there as my anger burned, and I was there for about 15 minutes, and it seemed like a really long time. And yet despite how angry they made me, I still loved them. But I needed to be at a distance, didn't I? I love them because I'm their father and nothing can change that. God is our father. He knows your idol worship. He wants you to smash your idols. He wants you to confess your sins, confess your idols and turn away from them. He does not want to punish you, but he offers to you Jesus, the true and better Moses, who has given himself as a substitute for your sins. Put your faith in him. Jesus is standing at the entrance of the camp and saying, are you with the Lord or not? So why don't you stand with Jesus and be saved?